You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my favorite authors back on the show, Melissa Dela Cruz, that's here to talk about her brand new book. It's called Never After, The 13th Fairy, and this is the first in a brand new series called The Chronicles of Never After. And Melissa, I have to tell you, this is this is one of the uh, most clever um, ideas for a book series that that I've run across in quite a while. And I love where you're going with this. Um, welcome back to the show. Oh, Hank, it's so nice to be here. And thank you so much for those kind words about the book. I'm so flattered. Yay. Oh, you're you so welcome. You know, the, there are certain people um, that you look forward to talking to because you know that uh, uh, that you're going to get to dig into their process a little bit and learn something and I absolutely do that from you uh, every time. But then there are people that you just enjoy talking to. And uh, I'm I'm super glad that you're back on the show today. Oh, yay. I am, too. Uh, Always so, fun. Yeah. Um, Melissa, the, when you were on the show a couple of times ago, um, we were talking about um, this book that you had that was a, a bit of a departure for you and that it was, uh, you know, more of a thriller. Uh, and then last time we talked about the Queen's Assassin, which had you kind of coming back to your uh, fantasy roots. Um, what is it? Uh, do you remember what your first fantasy um, mm-hmm. that you read mm-hmm. uh, that completely opened your imagination? It kind of that uh, that fantasy was uh, was something that you wanted to do for yourself. Oh, I certainly remember it. Um, And it was a book called The Lord of the Rings. And I remember I had tried to read The Hobbit maybe when I was around 11. And I just wasn't that interested in it. I I remember kind of, you know, putting it aside. It felt, even though it was a kid, it was the kid's book of The Lord of the Rings series. It was just a little too dense for me. I wasn't, I just wasn't into it at 11 years old. And then I picked up um, The Lord of the Rings when I was 13, and I got so into it. And it was the book that kind of opened up fantasy for me. I mean, I was a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, and it felt like it was my own personal fandom. Um, you know, I when I was 13, I would write down in my notebooks that I was going to name my kids Legolas and Arwen. <laughs> 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 you know, it couldn't happen, but it was. I wanted a 13 and uh and then I read the entire series and then I read I reread The Hobbit, you know, um and I just got yeah, I just got into fantasy. I just opened this whole world, you know, even reading The Silmarillion, you know, after you read Lord of the Rings, you read kind of the appendixes and indexes and just the way that the story kind of, you know, even keeps going in in that in that way, you know, where it's just, you're just reading like family trees and indexes. And I was just so into it. Absolutely. 
something that that's fascinating to me is that I have, you know, we've done more than a thousand uh, different shows now, and I, I've talked to authors of every stripe and that write in every genre that there is. And you would not believe the number of people that say that one of their the first things that that opened their imagination and made them want to be a writer was reading uh, either Tolkien or uh, C.S. Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia. And there is such a common thread across all genres that that root back to this book series. It's uh, there's something magical about it. Absolutely. And, you know, uh... I think it's because it's not just about fantasy. It's about friendship. You know, it's about loyalty. And, you know, there are certain moments in the book that would always make me cry. You know, ever since I was 13, when, you know, when Aragorn thinks Frodo was dead, you know, because he's been um, stabbed by, you know, one of the ring race. And it turns out that, you know, Frodo is wearing that uh, silver, uh, you know, kind of protective armor underneath his shirt that Bilbo gave him, you know, and it's just the way that the character that Aragorn is just so relieved and so happy that his friend is still alive. Um, you know, and you, we learned that Tolkien, you know, kind of based it on his experiences in war, um, right. you know, with a group of friends and it's just, you know, it's just so real, you know, that moment, you know, in a fantasy book. Well, it's so weird because we're, we're talking about uh, sometimes even fictional races of characters with hobbits and elves and dwarves. Um, yet, I think the thing, uh, like you rightfully put it, the, the thing that, that draws us is the human connection and the, the way we can explore real human emotion, even if it's through people that are not exactly human. Um, why do you think that, that we, do we let our guards down more with fantasy literature uh, or what is it that allows us to tell very human stories, even if they're not necessarily human characters? Yeah. I mean, my husband has a quote that he read. I can't remember who said it, but you know, it was something like uh, we like fantasy because the people are real and the situations, the environments are um, fantastical, but you know, to make it work, the people have to be completely, you know, um, real and relatable. And, uh, you know, and he said, you know, we don't, you know, people like fancy like that, that human element in this, you know, kind of imaginative world. And then literature is, uh, you know, the people are kind of extraordinary and, you know, um, a little bit more fantastical, but then the world is so ordinary. So I think we're drawn to these human stories, you know, these real stories in this fantasy world, because it's an allegory, it's a metaphor, you know, it's not literal. Um, and I also think it's a little escapist, you know, in fantasy, the Dark Lord is slain, <laughs> you know? Right. Triumphs over evil. It's so um, cozy and it's just, it just makes you happy, <laughs> which I think is why I'm drawn to genre <laughs> literature. <laughs> Ab absolutely. Um, how many books does this make for you now that you've written? You know, I think it's around 63. Uh, I'm not sure if this is my 63rd book or if um, the book that I've published up till now is 63. <laughs> but I, do, I know I did count this year, and this was this is around the 63rd book. That I, have. I, I know a question that, that readers will have, and, uh, it, you know, to, to a lot of writers, this, this may... Um, 
be kind of an old hat question, but um, do you do you ever struggle with new story ideas? Um, you know, with sixty three books published, um, and and we'll we'll take the 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 up or down there. Um, but th- are you ever at a loss for new fresh story ideas or new series ideas? Not really. Um, and I have a studio now with Disney, the Melissa Delacruz Studio. Um, which basically is um, the ideas for books that I don't get to write myself. Um, I, I like a lot of ideas. I like the culture. I like being part of it. I like trying to figure out, you know, what is something that I can add to it, um, you know, and, uh, and I, I feel really lucky. But, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think for writers, ideas are not the problem. It's the execution of them. You know, yeah. will I have time to do this? Is this something that I can sell? Um, is this something that readers will want to buy for me? Um, you know, is this something I can convince my publisher <laughs> to publish? Um, but yeah, no, I think I think it's more trying to figure out which ideas, you know, are the most, um, you know, are the easiest to translate to um, to a written book. You know, is this going to be something that I can carry through, you know, in a whole novel or even in a whole series of novels? So, um, you know, some ideas really just are maybe just a short story or maybe just, you know, um, a little anecdote. You know, like people, I think uh, people who aren't novelists or aren't long story writers, um, you know, they'll say, oh, you should write about that or, you know, oh, that's fine, you know, and then I'll just be like, mm. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I can already, I can always tell them, and I think another writer told me, you know, just tell them, you know, that's just an anecdote. <laughs> that's, that's not enough for a whole novel. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, speaking of your new partnership with Disney, um, I know that you have done things with them in the past, the, with the Descendants um, and and various things. What are they like? to work with uh, as far as as far as storytellers, you know, as, as kids that grew up with Disney, as I did, um, you know, Disney was kind of the the cornerstone of storytelling in a, in a lot of ways, especially our childhoods. Um, what are they as a company like to work with? Um, they're really great to work with. I've worked with Disney now um, for almost 20 years. Um, I think they're very collaborative. I think when they bring on talent, you know, when they asked me to do Descendants, uh, you know, they kind of gave me, uh, you know, the keys to the kingdom. You know, it's like anything I wanted to do story wise um, was kind of open. You know, they were kind of open to my ideas on how to bridge the original classic movies to the new Disney Channel um, movie. And uh what I found was interesting was their uh, their attention to detail. You know, these are the stories that are part of their franchise, that are part of what makes Disney Disney. So there's certain things um, that they were protective about, which was never, you know, what I was worried about. Like, oh, can I do this thing? You know, can they go to a secret island and find this? And there's, an, you know, an apple in the tree. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, something completely outrageous has never been done before. They were fine with that. What they were uh, protective about was stuff like, um, I remember when I wrote in one of the Descendants books, you know, that there were um, fairies whose mom was Tinkerbell. And they were like, Tinkerbell does not have any Descendants. <laughs> you know <laughs> 
<laughs> certain characters. No, <laughs> you know, you can't mess with Tinkerbell. <laughs> but did Tinkerbell have a sister who might have had some, you know, descendants? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but just oh. not Tinkerbell herself <laughs> that's so funny and and they are very protective of of the story and kind of the big ideas around their characters aren't they oh absolutely and you know that was even with how maleficent was depicted you know um we couldn't really stray that far from um you know kind of her iconic characterization in the original sleeping beauty movie you know i mean she is this big bad evil iconic villain um, and we couldn't, uh, you know, we didn't really want to mess with that too much. Gotcha. Well, I know that Rick Riordan um, has an imprint with Disney now with the Rick Riordan presents and and uh, uh, allowing other voices to tell stories like his um, and uh, the way that he, um, you know, merges, uh, you know, different um uh, legends and myths in in uh, uh, from different parts of the world with you know a, a modern uh, flair or a, a modern adventure story. Um, uh, are you doing something like that with them, where uh, this is uh, kind of stories that you approve of and have your stamp on, or what's that partnership like for you? Um, no, my deal is a bit different um, because it is creating uh, intellectual property for Disney. So all of the books uh, come from my ideas. So it always starts with me. And then we try to find a writer um, who can collaborate with us and uh, kind of bring that book to life. But they are my books. Um, they are uh, my ideas. So it's, it's a little bit different from Rick's uh, imprint. Gotcha. Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. 
We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com so let's talk about the new series that uh, the 13th fairy that the never after um, what was the what was the beginning idea for this uh, series for you? It was funny. It came from an idea I'd been working with for a while and it was a really different idea uh, that ended up being never after. So I think around by the time the Game of Thrones uh, TV show was kind of ending. I uh, saw a photograph in a magazine of the actors who played Jon Snow and Ygritte, who were romantically involved on the show, the characters, and in the books. Uh, you know, this is Jon Snow's great love of his life, Ygritte. Um, and in the story, in the books and in the TV show, Ygritte dies. You know, it was very sad. Right. Um, I saw this photograph of the actors, and the actors who played Jon Snow and Ygritte were getting married. And I was just filled with this happiness to see <laughs> married. And I thought, oh, my God, in a parallel universe, Jon Snow and Agree are totally fine and they're married. And I just just so kind of delighted by this thought that these characters had this other life, these actors um, and some, some kind of, uh, you know, happily ever after for them somehow. Maybe not in the Game of Thrones world, but in uh, our real world. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a book that kind of had that, where, you know, these characters that are so beloved have this tragic ending in the fantasy world, but in this parallel universe, you know, the actors who play them, romance that works. So I was with this idea, and I'd written a couple proposals trying to figure out how to bring this book to life. Um, and it didn't quite work out as a young adult. And so, but I still kind of had the seed of this idea of kind of conflating the real world and fantasy. Um, and then it became the idea of what if a super fan of a fantasy series ended up in the fantasy world? So I had that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I thought, oh, I want, you know, I feel like now it has to be a middle grade book. And I was doing a little leap little research i thought maybe i still want to do fairy tales and i discovered that the uh original grimm's fairy tale of sleeping beauty doesn't actually end with the prince uh waking up sleeping beauty with uh true love's kiss you know they get married but then his mother-in-law is an his mother is an ogre you know she tries to kill sleeping beauty kills children i mean uh plot twist (laughs) yeah Frames the prince for it. I mean, it's just this whole tragic, horrible, you know, sad fairy tale ending. And I thought, oh my God, what if the evil fairy, when she cursed Sleeping Beauty, wasn't actually cursing her? She was trying to save her from this terrible fate. And that's kind of when the story kind of clicked in. And I thought, oh, great, I can have my super fan of this fantasy series, you know, which I'm calling in the book also the Never After series. And, you know, this girl is suddenly. De- discovers that the 13th book is not being published. Um, and then instead of reading the 13th book, this discovers that she's part of it. So that's kind of the, the long history <laughs> of that idea. You said that you um, started writing a, a proposal for what you thought might be a, a young adult 
novel or series and it didn't work out. Is this something that you do um, when you're thinking of a new series? Do you do you start working out the proposal and seeing what uh, what it might look like? Uh, is there a, a a part of kind of pre-writing or planning that goes into it to th- let you know whether this is uh, something feasible or not? Yeah, um, I started working on it. Um, usually I propose uh, books. I write a proposal, you know, um, kind of telling the editors what it would be, you know, a little synopsis. Uh, and, you know, in this case, uh, it was just, uh, it just didn't work out as a YA book. Um, and, uh, and I can't remember whether it was like certain logistics with my contracts where I was already, uh, beholden to something else, or, you know, I don't really remember, or I kind of thought maybe it was a little thin, you know, like it was really just that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Actors, you know, and that's why I'm like, well, you know, maybe that wasn't quite a big enough idea for a whole, uh, series and a whole novel. Um, but yeah, I do, you know, start to write it out and then, you know, I'll send it to my agent, see what he thinks, you know, send it to the editor, see what they think. Um, and, you know, no matter what, even though I've had 63 books published, uh, some some of the proposals, you know, um, they're just not as into. They'll be like, yeah, try again. <laughs> you know, like we, we don't see that, you know, really selling or, you know, we'd like something different from you. I mean, publishing is a business. It's right. It's, uh, it's not just a dream factory. <laughs> well, and I, I would imagine that over 63 books that you've developed um, a bit of um, um, a, a professional relationship with your work um, in, in a way that that you can separate your feelings about the story from whether uh, from being able to, to tell, you know, is this is this really going to work or not? Um, how do you maintain that space? between you and the work while still obviously caring so deeply about the work because it shows on the page. Like how do you connect with your work while also staying objective about it? Well, I think, um, you know, I think that's really important for writers to do. I I don't think your identity can be wrapped up um, in the work. Uh, And I think I discovered that it's actually something that you discover not in failure, but in success. because I think the first time I had a major hit in my hands, which was, because uh, the old parents did quite well. Um, it was a huge seller, but it was really Blue Bloods that kind of became um, a little bit, of, you know, a life changer in that, you know, um, I, I'll just, I'll just state, state it plainly, you know, when you're a mid-list writer, you know, you maybe hear from your agent a couple of times a year, you know, sure. you hear from your editor. Um, also a couple of times a year, it's a little bit more, it's not as, there's not as many meetings, you know, there's not as much uh, to weigh in on. And then suddenly when Blue Bloods took off, you know, we were just on the phone every week and there was all this like strategy about the next book in the series and how we would launch it. Um, And, you know, they would call you every week with an update on sales. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like a whole different (laughs) level. (laughs) Right. Well, and uh, yeah, and it it was interesting to kind of like uh, experience, you know, a publishing career in, in, you know, kind of this gradual way. It was kind of nice. You know, I'd been kind of tootling around for a while. You know, my book sold all right. 
sold well. You know, I always had um, books under contract, but then suddenly, you know, and then you have this, you start to believe your own press, you get this huge head. And that's when, you know, and uh, as my husband said, you were really kind of awful <laughs> at that stage. And I think what happened for me is that during in 2008, you know, we were going to have a TV show for Blue Bloods. There were all these meetings. There was so much hoopla. And I was starting to believe in it. And then all of a sudden it died. The TV show didn't get picked up. You know, everybody says, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. You know, and it was my first kind of brush with Hollywood that way. And then when it didn't happen, I was like, oh, my God, Hollywood lied. <laughs> and and I just like all the air came out of my big balloon head. And I think ever since then, I've been able to kind of um, really kind of separate, you know, my emotions from um, how the book is doing, which I think, you know, you kind of have to do. Otherwise, you're going to go insane. Uh, so uh, so while I really, you know, am passionate about the work and I'm, you know, 100 percent serious about um, my work, you know, you can't control the reaction to it. So. Right. You can't control whether people are going to like it or not, um, whether it's going to be a hit or not. Uh, you can try um, to, you know, write the best book you can. And then you just have to see what happens, you know, and it's sometimes it's just timing, you know, and uh, and it's just sometimes it's just luck. And, you know, um, I remember when I pitched the Alex and Eliza book to my editor, she said, this is great, but we need it now. You know, she kind of said for this book to really take off would have to publish in six months. Can you do that? You know, which meant a really crazy uh, writing schedule and getting everything together in such a short period. And I said, okay, let's do it. You know, and it was also, it was like uh, kismet. Like she called it. She's like, we can't wait a year. Like it has to come out in six months. Otherwise the moment will pass. Um, and it was published just at the perfect time. Um, so sometimes that happens uh, and it's, and it's great. And we're, you know, and you get really lucky, but again, you can't let it get to your head. <laughs> you can't be, uh, you can't rest on your laurels too much. <laughs> well, I think there's this um, sort of silly um, misnomer, uh, especially amongst new writers that uh, people get so caught up in in uh, especially one of their first novels and they feel like they're putting all of of them into the book and you know this thing has to be absolutely perfect and that it sort of consumes their life and like like they're working on their magnum opus um and as someone that has 63 books in her back catalog um you you obviously take very special care in everything that you write and it shows and your your fans that follow you um, see that care that goes into them. Um, but obviously at some point you have to understand that there's not one single work that's going to define you as a writer. Um, it, is that something that you uh, ever wrestled with? Not really. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I always wanted to be able to have a commercial, uh, career in publishing you know my my heroes were stephen king you know who's written i don't know even more, you know 100 books let's say i mean i read sure. pretty much all the stephen king books when i was 13 you know all his back catalog from 
the seventies um, up to what he was publishing when I was a high school senior uh, in 1989. So, you know, probably 20 years of his books I read, you know, and then my other hero was um, a kid's book writer, Enid Blyton, who wrote oh, yeah. 500 books, you know? So I was really, I really liked um, that kind of lifestyle. You know, I wanted to write a lot of books. I wanted to, be somebody who only wrote books, you know, who had um, writing books as, you know, their source of income. I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to be a journalist. Um, you know, I didn't want to have to have a day job. I, I wanted to write books like Stephen King and Edith Blyton. So, yeah, I, I, I would say I don't have a singular book um, that really defines me. Um, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I love that answer. I love that answer. Um, in the Never After series, um, there's something that it's uh, uh, kind of a guilty pleasure to read books about books and and to have a character that transcends and becomes part of the story is uh, is kind of delicious for for book lovers. Um, tell me a little bit about Philomena. What who is she and and why does this thing happen to her? <laughs> um, so Philomena, you know, is uh, a little bit of me when I was 12, uh, you know, as like a big uh, fan, a big stan of books, uh, of a book series. So she's a little bit of, you know, 12 year old me into Lord of the Rings, into Dune, you know, the having these books as kind of her best friends, you know, she's not doing too well in school uh, socially, you know, she's being bullied <laughs> her best friends has dumped her, which happened to me at that age. I remember that, um, you know, how, how hurtful it was. Um, and, uh, she's a little bit of my kid, you know, she's a little sassy. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to write about a more modern kid and I had one right here. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she's a little inspired by my child who thinks we're too overprotective. You know, the parents in it are definitely me and my husband. Um, and there's a little bit of poking fun at having, you know, kind of neglectful writer parents <laughs> who are always on deadline. <laughs> also super overprotective. You know, she's not allowed to do a lot of things, but oh, her parents are so happy when she's reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I wanted to write about you know a real kid um, today, uh, and uh, you know somebody who was a super fan of books, a little bit of nerdy. I, I love, I love bookwormy kids, you know, and you know seeing myself in books too, you know, in Joe March, in uh, in all these kids in Hermione, you know, it's kind of like a a tribute to bookish kids everywhere who go on adventures in their mind. <laughs> and and she's fascinated by the series uh called never after and w what is the what's the mechanism that that uh that opens this world to her um so she goes to get the uh to go get the 13th book and discovers it's not there and she sees other fans you know you know from the books um and it turns out that one of these uh, fellow, one of these people that she thinks are her fellow fans are actually characters from the book, and they've kind of stumbled into this world because they're looking for something. 
uh, and then she kind of joins them on this adventure, um, which takes place uh, uh, through a tree portal, you know, uh, even though they say that chimneys and wardrobes are kind of good ways to get to other places. <laughs> In my world, it's the tree. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, when you had uh, kind of stumbled onto um, the mechanism of the story, you know, she's going to uh, she's going to inhabit fairy tales. When, when you kind of got to that point and you said like, Oh, this is kind of this aha moment that, that happens a lot of times when you, when you, uh, you know, think of something like that. Did, did you start thinking of different fairy tales that, that you could then bring into the story? Like, how did you choose what was going to make up the series then? Yeah, I think I just chose um, stories that I knew a little, uh, uh, knew well. Um, and I think that I don't want to spoil it, but one of the characters turns out to be, you know, somebody from uh, a fairy tale uh, with a lamp <laughs> yeah, in front of it. Uh, and I thought that was really fun because his name, you know, kind of aligned with with the character. And uh and I just thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun. That's a that's a fun puzzle. Um, and I always like, you know, um, Red Riding Hood and the Wolf. Uh, I like to twist things around, you know, so I would try to find these stories that had this one, you know, everybody knew about, um, let's say, uh, Shahazarad, you know, who had to tell the emperor a thousand and one stories, otherwise he was going to kill her. Um, and then in my book, she's like, oh, no, you know, he would never do that. You know, like she's kind of <laughs> she was like, it was just about, you know, the girls losing face, you know, because he didn't he didn't pick them. So we had to say that, you know, he was killing them because otherwise they would be killed. So, you know, it's just kind of fun to like twist things that we know. <laughs> Love it. Well, I I know that there's um, a, a second book that's coming and it's going to be called The Stolen Slipper, I believe. Um, do you, do you have a vision for the full series? Do you know where this is going? Yes, um, I do. Uh, and, uh, and I kind of had to figure it out <laughs> because I was not, not only writing book two, but also trying to plan out book three. Um, and you know, it, it is hard, uh, to plan these things, uh, because you never know, uh, when the publisher will stop publishing them. Uh, I was very lucky. You know, with Blue Bloods, uh, we published seven of the novels, uh, but we had, I actually think we were going to publish nine, but then, you know, that they, the story and, you know, just the way it was working out, I said, you know, I don't think I want to stretch it that far. I, I think I, I have to wrap it up now with book seven. And they were, they were happy with that too. Um, but, you know, they bought two at a time. So I was like, how did I know I could still write these <laughs> you know <'cause laughs> I kept going I knew what the end was but I didn't know exactly what book would take me there you know but I think around book six you know when I was planning book six and seven we were like I think we should we should wrap at book seven and the and they were fine with that um and but now we're having a new blue bloods book which is kind of funny because now we are publishing um two more blue bloods books which would bring <laughs> the uh the tally to nine which was uh what they had bought so <laughs> that's kind of funny. Just realize. Well, speaking of of more Blue Bloods books coming, um, you're you write um very varied um 
subject matter and and age groups um does does kind of moving from one to the other does that keep the writing fresh for you and and prevent you from you know feeling like uh this is territory i've I've trodden already um yeah uh I think what uh, how I deal with writer's block is I have a lot of projects. So when I get stuck yeah. on project, I just work on the other one, uh, which is great because it keeps uh, me engaged and working. Uh, and then when I'm kind of, you know, loose, then I can go back to the project that was giving me trouble. So I think that's been kind of good for me. Yeah, I, it's hard to write one you know genre after the other. Like I, if I've written like a YA fantasy, I want to write something else if i'm in the middle of writing my middle grade i don't want to write another middle grade i want to write you know uh maybe an adult thriller again you know so i do try to uh not do the same thing one after the other like after i wrote never after i wrote another i went to jump to my next project and then now i'm back on never after but i didn't write the sequel immediately after writing the first book i had to take you know some time from it Love it. Well, the new book is Never After the 13th Fairy, the first book in the Chronicles of Never After series. Uh, Melissa, I love this book. I love what you're doing with it. Can't wait to see where you take us uh, on this journey. Um, We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where people can grab the hardcover or Kindle edition or audio book. I I love that you're doing audio of these, um, by the way. Um, But where can people find you if they want to dig into all of the great stuff that you do? Oh, great. Uh, Melissa-Delacruz.com is my website. And on Twitter, I'm uh, Melissa Delacruz, one word. And on Instagram, author Melissa Delacruz. Excellent. We'll put links to all of those places in there where people can find you. Melissa, this is uh, always so much fun to chat and get to catch up. Thank you for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Hank. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Bone Thief. John Driscoll Book 1 by Thomas O'Callaghan 
A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of the boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.